I'd like to tell you about a story, one that happened to me when I was around 15 years old. Not even two years old in my spiritual life, what I lacked in wisdom I made up for in zeal. I was a very zealous convert, sharing my faith with everyone who would listen, and others too. <laughs> and I also had a great deal of hostility towards Marian doctrine and devotion. That was how I had been schooled in the faith, and so that is how I shared my faith. But this story doesn't really relate directly to my spiritual life or my attitude toward Mary. But it happened around that same time I was discovering the faith. I was around 15 years old. I was sitting there in my home room in high school when suddenly I began to feel the rumblings of a stomach bug. Well, I knew where I had to go, and I ended up in the nurse's office just a few minutes later. She took my temperature. I was spiking a fever, so she ordered me to lie down, and she called my mother. The next thing I remember was waking up myself and looking up and seeing this pitiful expression of maternal solicitude, looking down and my mom saying, Oh, Scotty, it's time to, time to go home. It's time to take you home. And as she was helping me up and as I was getting my coat on, I heard a very ominous sound, the first period bell. I knew what it meant. All my friends were suddenly about to be walking down the hall when I would be walking down the hall with my mother. And so dutifully, I followed her out of the nurse's office and began walking down the hall. And I leaned forward and I said, Mom, do you mind walking in front of me? And as a mother, she complied and she began to walk about 10 or 15 steps in front of me until we got out the door and into the parking lot and I caught up with her, got into the car, went home and spent the day in bed. I forgot about the whole thing. I assume she did. Apparently she didn't. My dad got home. I heard the rumblings of their conversation downstairs. A short moment later, he opened the door. He asked how I was. I said, fine. And then he stepped in. He wasn't a believer at the time. He was still struggling as an agnostic. But I remember what he said to me. He said, Scotty, your religion doesn't mean a thing if it's all talk. And I wasn't sure what he was talking about. And then he said, you have to think more about the way you treat people. And then came the clincher. He looked at me and he said, don't ever be ashamed to be seen with your mother. And he turned around and he walked out. And I didn't need anybody to explain it to me. I knew exactly what he was referring to me. He was referring to that episode earlier in the day and suddenly, instead of being ashamed of my mother, I felt ashamed of my shame. But as I look back on that episode many, many years later, not only do I realize how wise my father was and how wrong I was, but how common that sort of affliction is, not only for adolescents with their natural mothers, they're so tough, they want to be seen as cool, they want to be independent, and so the last person they want their friends to see them with is their mother, but there is a spiritual analogy because in the supernatural life, I think we run into spiritual adolescents where many men and women find themselves feeling a little bit ashamed of being seen with their spiritual mother in the family of God. And I'd like to use that episode as a point of departure for my study this morning. I'd like to share with you how I found the Blessed Virgin Mary in Scripture. Typology. 
one of my favorite interpretive principles that is taken straight from the Bible itself, straight from our Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament writers. Typology is the study of types. You can read all about it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 128, 129, and 130. What is typology? It's the study of types. What is a type? It is a divine analogy of the new covenant found in the old. But what many people might not realize is that the notion of typology, the study of types, is actually taken directly from the New Testament itself. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, we read about how in the law of Moses, there were types and shadows of the good things to come that have arrived now with the new covenant. The word for type in the Greek is literally typos or tupoi. And so the study of types is actually a study of how the New Testament writers interpreted the old in the light of Christ. But what happens if people don't know the Old Testament and they're only reading the new and they're trying to isolate a few proof texts in a way that is alien to what the New Testament writers were doing themselves. In the book of Romans, St. Paul instructs these new believers in a similar vein. In verses 12 and 13, he makes a comparison between Adam and Jesus, and he explains how Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And once again, he uses the same Greek word, typos. So in Adam, you have an analogy of Jesus. What is an analogy? It is something that we use in comparison because it has profound similarities, and yet it has dissimilarities. There are similarities between Adam and Jesus as well as dissimilarities. What are the similarities? Well, Adam was the firstborn son of God in the human race, and so is Jesus. Adam was made in the image of God, and Jesus is the image and likeness of God. Adam was given dominion as the king of creation, and Jesus is the king of kings. Adam was created sinless, and so was Jesus when he came to us. Adam was the representative head of the old covenant, just as Jesus is the representative head of the new covenant. And we could draw out other parallels and similarities. What about the dissimilarities? Unlike Jesus, Adam sinned. Unlike Jesus' humility, Adam succumbed to pride and didn't bring life upon us like Jesus, but he brought death in the form of original sin. That's how typology works, and we learned our basic lessons right from the Apostle Paul himself, who, along with the other New Testament writers and the 12 disciples, learned all of this straight from the lips of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, you will hear Jesus repeatedly speaking about himself and his redemptive work in these analogical terms, in terms of typology. So the disciples learned how to read the whole Bible straight from our Lord. And so it is a dangerous way to approach the Bible, to look for a few isolated proof texts in the New Testament while disregarding the Old Testament. Now you might be thinking, how does this apply to Mary? Quite simply. You see, if Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. If Jesus is the new Moses, then Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. 
If Jesus is a new Solomon, the son of David, then Mary is the queen mother of the son of David. The new is prefigured by the old, and the old is fulfilled in the new. This is how the early church read the Bible. This is how they wrote their hymns. This is how they said their prayers. Let me read to you just a little bit of what I found as I was reading the early church fathers in the light of the Bible, and then going back and reading the Bible in the light of the early fathers. The earliest surviving testimony to Mary as the new Eve, as Jesus was the new Adam, is found in really practically the oldest of the church fathers who was writing, St. Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trypho. Trypho was a rabbi living in Ephesus around 135 AD. And in their exchange, this is what Justin wrote. Christ became man by the virgin in order that the disobedience that proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner in which it derived its origin. For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death, whereas the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon her, that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. Wherefore, this holy thing begotten of her is the Son of God, and so she replied, Be it done unto me according to thy word. And by her has he been born to whom we have demonstrated by so many scriptures, and by whom God destroys both the serpent and the fallen angels and the men who are like them. St. Irenaeus, the same way, writing in the second century, up in France, having studied under St. Polycarp, who had studied directly under St. John, this is what St. Irenaeus writes in the second century. The knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by the obedience of Mary. The knot which the Virgin Eve tied by her unbelief, the Virgin Mary opened by her belief. If the former Eve disobeyed God, the new Eve was persuaded to obey God so that the Virgin Mary became the advocate of the old Eve and thus the human race which fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin was then rescued by a virgin. I have references to Tertullian in North Africa and others as well. These were the statements that I came across studying church history. And I was wondering where in the Bible did they find this? How in the world could they interpret the Bible that way? And what I've discovered is this. Not only do we find typology at work in the New Testament reading the Old, we find typology at work in the early church fathers who did the same. But we still find that same principle of typology at work in the liturgy. Every time we go to Mass, what do we hear? The Bible. What part of the Bible? Well, we always hear the Gospel, but we also hear the Old Testament. Each and every single liturgy has both the old and the new, and if you listen carefully and ask for help from the Holy Spirit, you will be given ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, because you will hear how there are certain parallels, certain images, certain analogies in the Old Testament readings that are picked up by the new. Why? 
because that is how Mother Church teaches her children how to read the Bible. You see, when I was a Protestant, when I was a staunch anti-Catholic, when I was looking through the pages of the New Testament and coming up short, not finding any proof texts for the Catholic Church's teaching on Mary, I thought I knew the Bible. I mean, I had chapter and verse, and I had many, many verses memorized. And I knew right where to go, and I knew right what to quote, and I knew how to argue to get Catholics to capitulate. You know, I thought I knew the Bible, but upon further research, upon more years of study and much deeper prayer, I discovered I knew the Bible a lot like the mailman knows my neighborhood. You know, I knew chapter and verse just like Tony knows the street addresses for every home. But really, he only knows the street addresses for every house. He hardly knows anybody in the neighborhood. He might even be able to give you the names of the people in every home. But what he doesn't have, an interpersonal relationship between families and persons. So when I grew up, for instance, at the age of seven, I hardly knew any street addresses. But I knew Dave's little sister, and I didn't like her. And I knew Ralph's older brother, and I looked up to him, and I knew the parents, and I knew the kids, and I knew the lay of the land. And really, it wasn't until I got my learner's permit, until I got my driver's license, that I began to make all of the connections with the streets and the neighborhoods and the townships and the city of Pittsburgh where I grew up. Well, this is what the liturgy gives us. It gives us the lay of the land. It gives us the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament together. And so we are here this weekend because God wants to give all of you your learner's permit, your driver's license, so that the knowledge that you have will become more conscious, more deliberate, more useful, more powerful to intensify your faith and to resolve the questions and the objections that others might raise about your faith as a Catholic. Let me illustrate this point for you. Let's take a part of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is that? The first verse taken from the Gospel of John. Ring any bells? Of course, you not only recognize that from the Gospel of John, but you also hear how it echoes Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What a coincidence, right? Not even close. What a deliberate echo. Mark Twain once said, history does not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. In four verses, we have a half a dozen parallels between Genesis 1 and John 1, don't we? In the beginning, we have the Word, we have light, we have darkness, we have all things being made, including life itself. And all of this converges on Christ. Why? To show how Christ was prefigured in the old and how the old is fulfilled by Christ in the new. But I wonder, did John leave it behind at that point? after the opening four verses of his gospel. No, if you keep reading in John chapters 1 and 2, you'll discover that John kept reading from Genesis 1 and 2. He didn't leave Genesis 1 behind after the first four verses. 
What do you have in John 1, verses 29, 35, and 43? The next day, the next day, the next day. What does that remind us of in Genesis 1? Day 2, day 3, day 4. And then where do we see the fourth occurrence of the phrase the next day? We don't. Oh, darn. Just when I thought I was on a roll. But what you do find is not the fourth occurrence of the phrase the next day. Instead, you find this very significant phrase in John 2, verse 1. And remember when John wrote his gospel, there were no numbers dividing chapters or verses. Not until the Middle Ages were those added. In John 2, verse 1, we read, On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So what does John mean when he says, on the third day there was a marriage at Cana? So the next day, the first time would be day two. The next day, the second time would be day three. The next day, the third time would be day four. On the third day would bring us suddenly to the seventh day. And what happened in Genesis 1 and 2? On day six, God made man male and then female. And in Genesis 2, we discover he wakes up the morning of the seventh day, and what is he spy? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and he says, woman. And so there on the seventh day is the sign of a marriage covenant between the first Adam and the first Eve. So what did the early church fathers discover in John 1 and 2? In the beginning was the word, light, darkness, life, creation, all of that. The next day, the next day, the next day, day four, the third day, leading us up to day seven. And there's this beautiful marriage, a wedding at Cana in Galilee. What is the first thing that Jesus says to his mother? Woman, what have you to do with me? That is a euphemism, an idiomatic expression in the Greek and the Hebrew, implying no disrespect whatsoever. In fact, it implies mutuality. So here on day seven, the new Adam coming to redeem the old creation that the first Adam had plunged into ruin. And along with the new Adam comes a new Eve. And along with the new Adam and the new Eve comes a mystical marriage, a mystical covenant, the new covenant. And on that occasion, he turns water into wine. This was the first sign to reveal his glory. John notices the first time Jesus performed a sign. He referred to his mother as woman. So the first sign is turning water into wine. What is the last sign that Jesus will offer in his public ministry? His own death and resurrection. How he will die. And on the third day he will be raised. And he will become the new temple. The first sign that he performs, Mary is there as a new Eve. The last sign he performs is his own death and resurrection. And guess who's there again? Mary. Turn with me to John 19 and see what I saw when I read the scriptures to the early church fathers who were imitating the New Testament writers and Jesus himself. In John 19, what does Jesus say when he looks down and sees Mary? Woman! Once again, as with the first sign, so with the last. Woman, behold your son. In chapter 19 of John. 
And then he turned to the beloved disciple and said, Behold your mother. It's interesting to me, I might add parenthetically, that the great Lutheran biblical scholar E.W. Hankstenberg used this verse to demonstrate that on biblical grounds alone, you have adequate support for Mary's perpetual virginity and that Jesus' brothers and sisters were his cousins. Why? Because if Jesus had blood brothers and sisters through Mary, then what he did was illegal in entrusting her to the beloved disciple. And none of his younger siblings could have stood for it, nor would he have done it. It would have been contrary to custom. It would have broken the law unless he didn't have blood brothers and sisters through Mary, but he had cousins who would be called brothers and sisters as his nearest kinsmen, as was the custom in ancient Hebrew society. Even the Protestants like Hengstenberg see this so clearly, but there's a whole lot more to see here because he says to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, and from that hour, the disciple asked her to walk about 10 steps in front of him. Oh wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> from that hour, the beloved disciple took her to his own home. Why? Jesus wasn't playing favorites. He didn't name John, John, but the beloved disciple because John knows that he's merely a symbol, a sign that points to all of us. All of us are beloved disciples. All of us are called to suffer with Jesus. All of us are called to the foot of the cross. All of us are called to stand beside Mary and to take her into our homes from the very hour that Christ offers himself in this hour. We need a mother. And we're not ashamed of the gift that Jesus gave her. We're not ashamed of her at all. Now, I'd like to focus upon Mary as the Queen Mother, the Queen Mother of the Son of David, and our special focus will be the Gospel of Matthew chapters 1 and 2, along with Revelation 11 and 12. In Genesis 3, we read in verses 14 and 15, the curse pronounced upon the serpent because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. This is what God has promised for the serpent. A crushing defeat, a humiliation. He will eat the dust as it is in Psalm 72. The Davidic king shall conquer their enemies and make them lick the dust. Dust shall be their food. And it goes on to say in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Zera in Hebrew, sperma in Greek. It is a curious expression that associates seed not with the male, but the female. More on that later. And it goes on to describe how he shall crush the head, and you shall bruise the heel. Once again, another foreshadowing of how God will bring the humiliating defeat, the crushing humiliation upon the serpent. It's interesting because as I have studied this passage over the years, I have discovered much very similar to what Dr. Ed Sree discovered in his dissertation, Queen Mother, a Biblical Theology of Mary's Queenship. Ed is a good friend of mine, a former student who just defended this dissertation in Rome earlier this year. 
And what he found, I discovered to be most interesting, that when biblical scholars apply themselves to the terminology and the imagery in Genesis 3.15, where the woman and her seed shall crush the head of the serpent, biblical scholars have come away looking at that in its ancient historical light, and they see, quote, the woman of Genesis 3.15 is a prototypical queen mother figure. Where Eve failed, a new Eve will succeed. Where the first queen mother sinned, a new queen mother will arise in righteousness. He quotes authors Cazell, Robert Fouillet, Laurentin Stuhlmuller, and many others. No doubt the queen mother has her place here in Genesis 3.15. She is clearly the queen mother from whom royal offspring will arise to crush the serpent's head. So what we find in the Davidic kingdom is the restoration of what God established in the creation kingdom way back in the beginning. And every time God steps in to renew his covenant, he makes it more and more clear what he plans to do. In Genesis 17, as we move from Adam to Abraham, we move from Eve to Sarah. And in Genesis 17, verse 16, we discover that God is not just interested in working with the man, Abraham, but the woman, Sarah. There we read, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So that in Sarah we have the beginning of a dynastic promise that God has made. Kings of peoples shall come from Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah had to wait a long time for a son. They end up having to wait an even longer time to see the fulfillment of this promise of kings coming forth from her line. But the promise keeps working in human history. And the biblical record gives us spiritual insight into what is really going on behind the political scenes. There is a promise that as the serpent used the woman to bring the human family into disgrace, so God will use a new woman to bring humiliation and defeat to the serpent. And this woman is going to be used, as Genesis 3.15 describes and announced beforehand, to bring a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. Not surprisingly, ancient Israel's scriptures anticipate what this will look like as kingdoms rise up against Israel. If you have a pad and a pen, just jot this down. Judges 4 and Judges 9. In the book of Judges, Israel has entered the promised land after the Exodus. They have begun to conquer the Canaanites. But there is one Canaanite king who is very powerful, and he has set his military commander, an army general named Sisera, against the Israelite armies. And Sisera is winning. And yet a woman named Deborah, a prophetess, predicts that through a woman shall come a crushing defeat to this little puppet of the devil named Sisera. And sure enough, as we continue reading in Judges 4, against all odds, God raises up Barak, whose name in Hebrew means blessing. God raises up a blessing to bring the curse to the serpent's seed. And after a battle, Sisera is defeated. He's about to get captured, but he flees in haste and he gets away. 
No one knows where the general is hiding, and everybody is afraid of what he might do when he comes out of hiding. He's alone in a tent where he is being kept by a woman named Jael. In Judges 4.17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. And there he takes a nap. And while he naps, what happens? Jael took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple till it went down into the ground as he lay asleep from weariness. So the head of this little serpent was crushed by a woman, bringing defeat to the kingdom that warred against God's people. Once again, this happens in Judges 9, where you have Gideon, who was named Jerubbabel, and he had a son named Abimelech through a concubine. Abimelech aspired to be a king, but he was really a corrupt ruler. Before he could even take the crown, he had to slaughter 70 of his half-brothers. And then he imposed his authority upon the 12 tribes of Israel, insisting that he would be king. And his tyranny prevailed for a while until God raised up a woman to humiliate Abimelech. And Abimelech's defeat came through what? A certain woman threw an upper millstone upon Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Again and again in ancient Israel's history, there is an anticipation or a foreshadowing of how God will raise up a woman to bring humiliation and defeat to those that the serpent uses to keep us from salvation. But the thing I would like to zero in on, the thing that I would like to focus your attention upon even more closely, is an institution that arose at the same time the Davidic kingdom was established by God's covenant. God raised up David as a shepherd, a man after God's own heart. He gave him the power to defeat the enemies of Israel, and he established his dynasty by a covenant described in 2 Samuel 7. The son of David, Solomon, took the throne, and his crowning, his coronation, his anointing, is described for us in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. There, Solomon rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, while the people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Ring any bells. Sound familiar? That's why Jesus did it, and that's how the people knew who he was when he came riding into the city of David, Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey. They cried, Hosanna to the son of David, because they saw a new Solomon, a greater than Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we discover that Solomon didn't rule by himself when he took the throne and was anointed by the high priest of Israel. The various royal subjects came before him. They would bow. They would prostrate themselves before the king. They would offer petitions to the king and accept whatever decisions he handed down. But what's so interesting to me, what I recall vividly studying as a Protestant, focusing upon the biblical record of David's kingdom, what really jumped off the page was a passage in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. For there we see Solomon's mother going into the royal court the royal chamber, where everybody bows before King Solomon, now that he is newly crowned, freshly anointed. 
when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Solomon's half-brother Adonijah, the king rose to meet her, and he bowed down to her. And then he sat on his throne and had a throne or a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right hand. And from that position, at the king's right hand, she gave to him royal petitions, not just from royal subjects, but from his own brethren who preferred to go through his mother rather than going directly to Solomon himself. On this day, a new institution was established in the kingdom of God there in Israel. Alongside of the Davidic throne where the son of David sat was the Gebirah, the queen mother. And we know this because throughout the history of the Davidic kingdom, the office of the queen mother is one of the most prominent features of God's kingdom with the house of David. In fact, if you study First and Second Kings closely, you will discover one of the most important distinguishing features between the kingdom of Judah with the house of David that was legitimate and the kingdom of Israel up north in Samaria that was illegitimate is that the queen mothers are always identified. 19 out of 21 Davidic kings that are identified are also identified through their queen mothers. Even the term Gebirah in Hebrew, G-E-B-I-R-A-H, comes from the Hebrew Gabar, which means strength. Literally, Gebirah could be translated the strong lady or the great lady. It was known as the queen mother. And as the mother of the successor, she stood as a symbol of royal continuity, dynastic succession. She often worked behind the scenes to ensure that her son would be the next in line. And so it was proper for more than 400 years for there to be at the right hand of the Davidic king, the son of David, who by God's covenant was the adopted son of God. As God had announced to the prophet Nathan back in 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. The son of David by nature becomes the son of God through the grace of adoption. And there at his right hand was enthroned the queen mother of the son of David. For as long as the monarchy lasted, for as long as the Davidic kingdom was on earth, standing as a prototype of what Jesus would fulfill and perfect and establish forever and ever. And so it is. You can find throughout the writings, throughout the historical narratives as well as the prophets, references to the Queen Mother in the Kingdom of Judah. What do we do with this? We recognize it as an essential part of the covenant plan of God that David established, that Solomon continued, and that Jesus completed, perfected, and fulfilled with His coming. This is crucial for us to understand what was easy for Matthew to comprehend. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll look briefly at chapters 1 and 2. And there we're going to see a whole lot of royal imagery used. But there is one text that is all important in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. You go back to Isaiah 7.14, and you'll discover that the prophet Isaiah confronted the king, Ahaz, and said, Your faith is sagging. Ask the Lord for a sign. But Ahaz had already decided to disobey. He had already decided to ignore the covenant. He was already secretly bargaining with the enemies of God to enter into strategic alliances. And so Isaiah said, you won't ask the Lord for a sign? Well, he'll give you a sign anyway. If the king, if the man won't cooperate in faith with the Lord, then the Lord will give a sign with the woman. A virgin, the Alma, she shall conceive and bear a son. Scholars who have researched this text in Isaiah 7, verse 14, tracing it back to Hezekiah's birth, tracing it back to Isaiah's day, recognize that the term that is used in the Hebrew, Alma, that notion of virgin, points to the establishment of the Queen Mother. Again, I'm going to quote from Dr. Sri's dissertation. In this oracle, which Isaiah addressed specifically to the Davidic royal household, the young woman bearing forth the royal son, the heir to the throne, would have been understood as the queen mother. That after Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, Isaiah turned away from the unfaithful king and looked to the future by focusing on the heir to the throne and his queen mother. If the man won't cooperate, then God will go to the woman. If King Ahaz won't trust the Lord, then God will raise up the virgin, the mother, the queen mother. And that's exactly what Matthew understands the Lord to have done in Mary to fulfill the Isianic oracle. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so God was with us like never before. This is what we need to understand. The Queen Mother, when Solomon bowed before his mother, this was not simple courtesy, this was royal protocol. The Queen Mother was more than a title, it was a royal office, not only in Solomon's day, but in Jesus' time as well. When he began his public ministry at the behest of his mother, revealing his glory at the marriage supper at Cana, and then he began to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, he was there intent upon restoring the specific kingdom of David that God had covenanted himself to 1000 BC. You cannot understand Jesus' ministry. You can't understand Christ's mission apart from the Davidic covenant. But once you see the Davidic covenant as the background for the gospel presentation of Jesus, you're going to be ready to understand the role and the office of Mary and why it is that Mary, who fulfills her role as a royal counselor, as a queen mother, is eventually exalted when her son, the royal son of David, ascends into the heavenly Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, we hear the seventh angel blowing his trumpet and then a voice in heaven crying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, his Messiah. 
and he shall reign forever and ever, just as God had sworn. He will reign forever through the son of David. And this is the kingdom that the angel announces that Christ has established in his death and resurrection, in his ascension, in his royal enthronement in the heavenly Jerusalem. And as we continue on in John's prophecy, we read in Revelation 12, just a couple of verses later, a great sign appeared in heaven. It's the same Greek word that you'll find in Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive, and so a sign appears in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. What is the significance of the crown? This makes the woman a queen. What is the significance of the crown being 12 stars? She is the queen of heaven. Her royal authority is a cosmic queenship, just like her son's is a cosmic kingship. And it goes on to describe the boy that she bore, the child in verse 5. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is a quotation taken straight from Psalm 2, verse 9, a famous psalm written about the Davidic king, the Davidic kingdom. And this describes for us who the little boy is that the woman bore. This is why from the earliest times, the Blessed Virgin Mary was recognized by believers in the East and the West as the Queen Mother of the Son of David. It wasn't a point of debate. It wasn't an issue of controversy. It was a topic of prayer. It was a subject of the hymns of the early church. This is our legacy. This is our lady. This is our mother. This is our queen. This is an integral and indispensable part of the kingdom of Jesus. You cannot have Jesus as king if you won't have Mary as queen. This is the gospel of the new covenant. This is what we find when we read the whole Bible, not just in proof texts, but in typology. In the 20th century, Pope St. Pius X looked at Revelation 12 and asked the question, who is this woman? And he replied, everyone knows this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, crowned with 12 stars. Everyone knows that this woman signifies the Virgin Mary. John saw the most holy mother of God in eternal happiness, travailing in a mysterious childbirth. What birth was it? Surely it was the birth of us who are still in exile, who are yet to be generated to the perfect charity of God and to eternal happiness. You see, she is laboring, not in birthing Jesus, but in birthing us. In Revelation 12, verse 17, we discover that she has other offspring besides the Messiah, those who keep the commandments of God. As we strive to keep the commandments, as we strive to fulfill the covenant, we experience our weakness, but we experience God's strength. And how, where, who? The Blessed Virgin Mary, the New Eve, the Ark of the New Covenant, the Queen Mother of the Son of David. She is the one we turn to. Not just because the Bible says so, not just because the church teaches it, because we need her.
and it's high time we acknowledge it. I remember very clearly something that happened to me 15 years ago within a year of having become Catholic. I returned to the seminary that I would graduated from, summa cum laude, at the time a very staunch anti-Catholic evangelical Protestant who went on to ministry for a short period before the Lord picked me off with a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of truth that led me into the Catholic Church in 1986. Shortly thereafter, I went back to my seminary to visit, and I spent a weekend with a former professor who had become a dear friend whom I had served as a teaching assistant. He and his wife were very close to Kimberly and to me. I was alone with them. Kimberly couldn't come along, and she wasn't Catholic yet anyway. So one night, we sat down, and we began an intense discussion that ended up lasting for hours. It was a discussion that I had prayed for and prepared for, for days, for weeks, for months. And in the beginning, it felt like batting practice. He raised all of the questions and the objections that I had raised against Catholicism and then found answers to. The Pope, purgatory, the saints, the Eucharist. He was raising all of my familiar objections, and I was going to one part of the Bible, then another, and another. And his wife was looking more and more surprised at how easily it was to find answers to all of these common objections to Catholicism. And then finally, as evening drew nigh, we turned to the Blessed Virgin and we dealt with the Immaculate Conception. We dealt with the perpetual virginity. We dealt with several other issues. And I kept trying to make the point that the more we make of Mary, the more we make of Christ's redemptive work because He is the one who made her everything I believe her to be, everything the church teaches her to be. So I kept underscoring this idea that Mary is the masterpiece of Christ. As hours went by, I was feeling flush with success and a wee bit of spiritual pride, I suspect. And as midnight drew closer, I was feeling a little weary. He was still going, though. And I could tell with this last topic that he raised, he was really ready to pounce. He said, what about the assumption of Mary? And I said, what about it? He said, where do you find it in the first 500 years? And I'm like, oh boy, do we have to go back, you know? And so I went to Revelation 12. He said, no, we're not going to deal with that. I want testimony in the first 500 years. And I said, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any. And he said, what? Can you recommend any books? And I was really feeling tired and my mind was scrambled. My memory wasn't working. I said, no, Dr. So-and-so, I really can't. I can't think of anywhere. He said, what? And I felt ashamed. I felt scatterbrained. I felt humiliated. And I said, no, I really can't. Now it was his turn. He said, well, you know, this is an infallible dogma. You've got to believe it on pain of mortal sin. And you can't give me any sources from the first 500 years. You can't even recommend articles or books. Well, I think it's time to go to bed. <laughs> and he and his wife went ahead and got ready for bed while I picked myself up from the sofa and marched up to the attic feeling ashamed of myself. That last pitch, I swung and I missed and I felt like I'd struck out. I was really tired. I got down on my knees before going to sleep. I prayed one Hail Mary and offered a sincere apology to Our Lady. And I realized that it really isn't up to me. I rolled over and went to sleep. In their hospitality, they let me sleep in. And so around 
9.05 a.m. They woke me up and I smelled the bacon and eggs breakfast. I came down and I was enjoying breakfast when suddenly I, I spotted the calendar on the wall and I realized what the date was, December 8th. Now, I was a new convert. And so what is very familiar to you cradle Catholics was still a new thing for me. Something rang a bell. December 8th, there's something about this date. And then I remembered, it's a holy day of obligation. It's the feast of the Immaculate Conception. And so I, I realized I've got to get to Mass and yet I've got to fly home. How am I going to squeeze both into this day? So I mentioned it to my host. I, I said to Robin, you know, is there any way I could get to Mass today? And she said, you're in luck. St. Paul's is right in our backyard. What time is there Mass? She said, how would I know? <laughs> so very sensitively she called them up and then she heard the secretary say, Mass is just getting over. No other Mass is scheduled for the day. She proceeded to call a half a dozen other parishes in the area in her kindness to me. And every single parish, the same thing was true. The Mass was over. What a schmuck I felt like. Not only did I botch it the night before, but now I'm going to forget about a holy day of obligation, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. She was looking down at the yellow pages and she said, well, here's something I never saw before. There's a Carmelite chapel about 15 miles from here, down in Peabody. Could you make it to that? I said, well, you know, if there's a Mass. And so she called. And sure enough, right at noon, a Mass was scheduled. And so I spent the morning visiting former professors. I got in the car and I skedaddled down to Peabody, about 15 miles away. I didn't know where the chapel was. It turned out it was in the basement of a shopping center. I could tell by all the Christmas shoppers who were going down in haste at 11.59 with me. And then this old priest sauntered out of the sacristy, a bell rang, and the mass began. And I looked at the man and how slowly he moved, and I thought, this could really make it tight to get to the airport in time, you know. He looked to be in his 70s. He was moving and speaking very slowly. And I was wondering, oh no, it's going to be another one of those homilies. You know how it is. For converts, it isn't always easy. But this time it was very different. After the scripture readings, when he got up to the pulpit, he preached a homily like I had never heard before. With twinkling eyes, he looked out at this packed basement chapel audience, and he said, today we celebrate our mother, and we celebrate the work of her son, our Savior. The fact that he conceived her without original sin, and there are people around us throughout this city who want to know why we believe it. And I want to tell you what you ought to tell them, that if you could have created your mother, how would you have done it? If you could have spared your mother the corruption and the taint of original sin, would you have done it? Of course you would have. But you couldn't, and so you didn't. But Jesus could, and so Jesus did. And we celebrate the Jesus of Scripture and the work of Christ and Mary. And he went on and on like this for 15 minutes. And I'm thinking, this is like Father Billy Graham. I couldn't believe my luck, the blessing of hearing this guy go on and on. Fifteen minutes later, it felt like two minutes. And then he proceeded on with the rest of the Mass. And it just flew by. I was exuberant with joy and gratitude. And when it was over and he pronounced the benediction, in about 21 seconds, all the Christmas shoppers were gone. I was alone praying. And I saw him moving in the sacristy. A thought occurred to me. I remembered I couldn't think of any sources last night for my professor friend. And so cautiously, I worked my way up 
to the sacristy. I knocked on the door and I said, Father, do you have a minute? And he said, no, not really. And I said, well, do you have a second? He said, what do you want? And I said, well, you were so good on the Immaculate Conception. I'm wondering if you could answer a question about the bodily assumption. He said, who are you? And I told him my name and I said, I graduated from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I was a staunch evangelical, anti-Catholic, but just this past year, I became a Catholic. And he said, you know, I used to teach there. I used to be there. I'm like, no, you don't understand. It's an evangelical Protestant seminary. He said, no, young man, you don't understand. It used to be a Carmelite seminary until we sold it to you. And he's eyeing me up and down, and he said, oh, so we give them the seminary, and they give us the graduates. That's a pretty good deal. I like that, you know. Very funny, Father. I like that, too. And I said, well, last night, I was really stumped by my professor on the bodily assumption. He asked me for a title, and I couldn't think of any. You were so good at the Immaculate Conception, I was wondering if maybe you could recommend something on the bodily assumption. And he said, well, no wonder you couldn't come up with anything because there's only one book in English. And it just went out of print last week. And I said, wow, Father, you really know your bibliography. He said, I should. I wrote it. <laughs> Suddenly, I felt like I was entering a twilight zone of sorts, you know. I'm like, you're kidding. He said, no, I'm not. I wrote it. I've got two copies. The publisher told me I ought to hold on to it, but I don't think I'm going to. What's your name again? What's your wife's name? And he inscribed it to us. And then he said, what's the professor and his wife's name? And he inscribed a copy to them. And I was still trying to recover from my holy shock. And as I left, I drove back to their home, just barely with enough time to tell him what happened. He was in the driveway as I was putting my suitcase into his trunk. And I said, Dr. So-and-so, here's a copy of a book. You were asking about the bodily assumption. There's only one book in print. It just went out of print. And the author happened to be the one who said mass in that Peabody Chapel. And I watched as his jaw dropped to the ground. <laughs> and I was so grateful that he had a copy to read. And I took it home and I read it too. But I learned a much more important lesson that day than simply how you could find sources in the first five centuries for the bodily assumption and how you could substantiate from Scripture, including Revelation 12, the bodily assumption, I learned the lesson that ultimately it isn't up to our argumentation. It isn't up to my intellectual prowess. It's up to the Holy Spirit. We're not out to win arguments. We're out to win souls, souls of our brothers and sisters who are sons and daughters of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And we need to be humbled sometime to learn that again. Just a few months ago, as I was sending off the manuscript of Hail Holy Queen to Doubleday, I wondered what I was going to do for a foreword. I'd asked a friend of mine to write a foreword. Instead, he wrote a brief endorsement. He misunderstood my request. And so in prayer, I asked the Lord one morning, who can I ask, who do you want to write the foreword to Hail Holy Queen? And I didn't hear a voice, but suddenly I had this thought. I wonder if old Father Killian Healy, the Carmelite, is still alive. No, he'd be in his 90s. But on an impulse, I dialed Boston Area Directory Information. And I said, is there a number for a Carmelite chapel up in the Peabody Mall? And she said, sure. She gave it to me. 
I hung up. I said a prayer. It was a Hail Mary. <laughs> I called the number. I hear a man's voice on the other side. I said, uh, may I speak to a Father Killian Healy? He said, Yar. I said, Father Killian Healy, you don't remember me, but my name is Scott, and of course I remember you. I've had a lot of people come by the chapel to see it and to meet me and to ask me when the book is coming into print. I still don't know, and I said, I don't either. I said, but would you be willing to, to write a foreword to a book I have written where I tell the story about our chance encounter at the conclusion of the book? He said, I'd be thrilled to. When do you need it? I said, in about 72 hours. But I could give you a week. He said, if you send it Federal Express, I sure will. And he sure did. It was there in 24 hours. He read it in two days. He called me. He thanked me. And he sent me a forward that I thank God for. So inhale, Holy Queen. The ending is the story of this so-called chance encounter. The forward is written by this awesome priest, Father Killian Healy. And in between the forward and the conclusion, I summarize and simplify his scholarly study of the Assumption of Mary and the Immaculate Conception and other topics as well. Because it is our birthright, brothers and sisters. She is our mother. She is our queen. She is more than the new Eve. She is more than the Ark of the New Covenant. She is my mama and yours. And I am not ashamed to admit it. This came home to me even more recently. Just a couple of, well, just a few months ago, I was in Rome with Kimberly and the kids on a pilgrimage to Rome and Assisi. In fact, this brand new tape series called The Venerable Beads, a Bible study on the rosary that Kimberly and I did was in the making. We were there in Assisi and then we were planning to go to Rome for a week to give these talks, these meditations on the rosary. We arrived on Saturday. Sunday, we began our pilgrimage tour of Assisi. Just three weeks earlier, my six-year-old son Joseph had undergone an emergency appendectomy. We didn't think he'd be able to come. The surgery was so successful, both doctors gave us the green light. He's fine. He can go along. And he had no pain when we were packing, when we were traveling. But that Saturday night when we arrived, he was squirming a little bit right where the surgery had been. I got to tell you, it's hard for me. I am no good at pain, especially when my kids are experiencing it. Just three weeks earlier, a class of mine had been interrupted with a phone call from the hospital where Kimberly said, Joseph's appendix is about to burst. You got to drop everything and get in here. And it was scary. And on the way to the hospital, I couldn't think straight. And I certainly wasn't driving legally. When I got there, I didn't know where to go. I'm begging God. I'm asking Mary. The first person I bump into is a priest. He said, I'm going up to the floor where the pediatric surgery is done. We get in the elevator. I said, my six-year-old's about to undergo an emergency appendectomy. He said, it's all right. I'm like, thanks. He said, no, it's all right. When I was six, I underwent an emergency appendectomy more than 70 years ago. And when I got up there, he blessed my son and the surgery was so successful. But three weeks later, it was another story. Because when we woke up Sunday morning and began our week-long adventure, our pilgrimage, Joseph was in agony. And he's tough. He doesn't give in to pain easily. But he couldn't stand up straight. He couldn't even walk. We had to take our baby out of the stroller and put our six-year-old in. 
as we strolled Assisi until finally he couldn't even do that anymore, so I took him back to the hotel. He was crying in agony. We put a call out. An Assisi physician came by who knew just a little bit of English. He looked at him, took his temperature, did a few tests, and said, we got to get him to the Assisi hospital right away, the emergency room. So, in paternal panic, I picked up my son, got into a cab, and went to the tiny little hospital in Assisi, Italy, where nobody speaks English. Where the x-ray technician was a part-time fireman who came in with a yellow raincoat and his galoshes on to take x-rays. I'm thinking, this is high tech. Oh God, please help. The tests didn't look good. They said, we have to admit him overnight. So I spent that night in Assisi, all night, with my six-year-old son in the hospital, lying next to him as he grimaced in agony. I thank God for the doctor. He came by that evening before leaving, and he tested it, and it was just such intense pain. He said, it's still only on the side of the surgery. It isn't of grave concern, but he said, if it goes to the other side, we're going to need to have an emergency operation. And he left around 8.30 p.m. that Sunday night. Every few moments, Joseph was crying out in pain, but then he fell asleep. And then every 10 or 15 minutes, he'd wake up, cry out in pain, and drift back to sleep. Then around 10 p.m., he really let out a scream. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he goes, oh, Daddy, it hurts. And I said, what side does it hurt? Is it the side of the surgery? And he said, no, Daddy, it's the other side now. And he hadn't heard what the physician had told me. So he didn't know what was going through my mind. At that point, I was in total panic. When he drifted back to sleep, I tried to sleep. I tried because I knew he would need me to be rested. But at midnight, I realized it was hopeless. I got out of bed. I dropped to my knees, and I began to pray with a concern I had never felt in my heart before, with a feeling of helplessness. As a father, nothing is worse than realizing I cannot fulfill my role as a provider for my own children. And so from midnight until 3 a.m., I prayed on my knees by his bed. And I got to tell you, in the darkness of that hospital room, I felt the presence of St. Francis and St. Clair, but most especially the Blessed Virgin Mary. If someone had shown me a picture of me in that room with her beside me, it wouldn't have felt any more real than it did. For those three hours, I shared my heart. She helped me pray. I didn't hear any voice. I didn't see any face. But I knew what the communion of saints was. It's more than a doctrine. It is a reality. Because I wasn't rowing my boat. The wind of the Spirit was blowing my sail so that I could pray and share the burdens on my heart. And I was crying out with tears, with agony. Dear God, help me. I was confronting fears I never thought I had. I thought I was too big and tough and strong and smart for any of this. And then at 2.45 a.m., I realized what a grace, what a blessing this prayer had been. And then I felt the Lord just saying, do you want a sign? And I said, Lord, I don't deserve it. Again, I didn't hear a voice, but I felt a freedom in the Spirit. And I said, Lord, you know what son I'd want. Can you please heal my son? The doctors, they're not ready. His father sure isn't either. 
And I had this peace. And I thought, what can I do to seal the prayers and to offer them to you? And again, right at my side, I felt the presence, not just of a heavenly queen, but of a nurturing mother. And so I spent the last 15 minutes that night praying the rosary. And as I finished up the Sorrowful Mysteries at 3 a.m. on a Monday morning, I knew my mother of sorrows. And I felt the love and the power of my heavenly queen. And at 3.01, I rolled over and drifted off to sleep. And I realized as I did that he hadn't cried out once in those three hours. And so hope and anticipation began growing. I woke up around 8 a.m., surprised that he was still sleeping. I got up, I said my prayers, I waited for him to arise, but he didn't. Around 9 a.m., the doctor came in. He said, how did he sleep? I said, the first part was rough. He said, where was the pain? I said, at 10 p.m., it spread to the other side. He bolted. He went down the hall. He went to the nurse's station. They began to call a team together for emergency surgery. He came back and he said, it's a good thing he's still sleeping and it will help his recovery. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And then suddenly around 9.20 a.m., Joseph's eyes open and he looked up. And then suddenly he did something that he couldn't do the night before. He sat up. He looked at the doctor with a smile and he said, Buongiorno. And the doctor said, Buongiorno to you, Joseph. He said, how do you feel? And he said, okay, really? Yeah. And he went over and he touched the side, not the side of the surgery, but the other side. He said, does this hurt? And he said, no. And he said, how about this? And he touched where the surgery had been. Does that hurt? Joseph said, not really. And he pressed harder. Does that hurt? No. Does this hurt? And he pressed real hard. He said, when you press that hard, it does. And the doctor's eyes grew really wide. And he looked at me and he said, something's happened. And I said, doctor, last night I was praying. And Mary and St. Francis and St. Clair, no matter what you think, they were here. And he looked at me and in broken English he said, this is a CC. What can I say? <laughs> I learned I still need my mother. I still need the rosary. And you do too. And so let's go to our Father in heaven. And let's go to His eternal Son. And in the Spirit, let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for the gift of Jesus the Christ, the Davidic Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and for His everlasting King that has come to us through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of authority. And we want to especially thank you this evening for the gift of Mary, for our new Eve, for the Ark of the New Covenant, and for the Queen Mother of the Son of David, for our Mama Maria. We thank you, dear Abba, that you have given us everything we needed and then some. And we celebrate your grace. We celebrate Christ's glory. And we thank you for the one who is full of grace. And we address her now, even as your angels did. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you very much.